The Silence of God, Meditations on Prayer, by James Carse, 1985. Ask and you shall receive. My earliest memory of anything religious is being carefully instructed by my grandmother in the proper method of prayer. She was in the habit of taking me each Sunday to her neighborhood Methodist church, keeping me at her side throughout the entire service, mercifully shielding me from the routine of Sunday school where unluckier children were confined to the tasks of coloring Joseph's robe or making a miniature church of used popsicle sticks. Because it was built in the semicircular shape popular among Methodists, the the sanctuary was enclosed with an 180-degree arc of translucent windows that bathed the entire proceeding in warm yellow light. The sermons were doubtless adequate by the standards of Ohio Methodism, but I remember nothing of them. I do remember how I got patted and stroked a lot by other children's grandparents and how my grandmother was complimented on my behavior in church. But what I remember best is putting my hand into hers during the prayers and trying to squeeze my eyes shut the way that she did. It was the practice of shutting my eyes that was certainly the most impressive feature of praying for me. My grandmother insisted so firmly on it that I decided to try to keep out even the yellow light. But the practice mystified me. The only other reasons I knew for intentionally shutting your eyes were to pretend that you were asleep when someone looked into the night, or to pretend, pretend that you were someone else and somewhere else. And now I was to pretend that I was talking to someone I could not even see and couldn't even know. Always remember, my grandmother would explain, though nobody can see God, he can see you. <clears throat> he knows everything in your heart. So whenever you speak to him, speak from your heart. But I was a little boy and hardly even knew I had a heart. Besides, everyone could already see me, and I did not pray to them. Apparently, you only pray to someone who remains hidden, like talking on a telephone to someone who never says anything back. Nearly 50 years later, this weightless dab of Methodist piety has become an awesome challenge. Speak to God from your heart. I'm no longer a little boy, and I've learned in becoming an adult another way of shutting my eyes inwardly against my heart. It's no longer a matter of not seeing God as it is not seeing myself. The problem is not pretending to speak to someone I cannot know, but speaking as someone I know I am not. I'm now persuaded that speaking to God from your heart is the only real religious issue there is. Learn to pray, and all else follows. It is not the content of the heart that matters, only the ability to speak from it. We sometimes think that a heart full of hatred or envy or a heart drained of passion disqualifies itself for authentic prayer. The task, however, is not preparing your heart for prayer, but speaking from your heart as it is. We can easily get this backwards in the religious life, assuming that our primary spiritual assignment is to make ourselves presentable to God, instead of presenting ourselves to God as we are. This book is a series of meditations on the challenge of speaking to God from the heart. They were originally prepared for a group of friends with whom the discussion of these issues had been fundamental to my understanding of them. By putting them onto paper, I only intend to extend the circle of friends with whom these crucial spiritual issues may be explored. By no means do I present myself as a master of the religious life, but I am but one member of a journeying community who depend on one another for the renewal of spirit and mind in our continuing 
quest for spiritual wholeness. Because the subject of prayer is so elemental to the religious life, the conceptual tools for these meditations are very simple and shall rely on an observed distinction and an experienced fact. The observed distinction, religious language falls roughly into two categories, <clears throat> that which is said about something and that which is said to someone. I shall refer to these categories as theology and prayer. There are uh, many forms of each and varied styles, but neither loses its character of being about something or to someone. Of course, it's possible to categorize all language under the same terms. We often speak about something, and it seems that we almost always are speaking to someone. A question of boundaries arises here. When do we cross the line into theology when we're speaking about something, and prayer when we're speaking to someone? Theology is usually marked off by the verbal content of what is being said. Some persons argue, for example, that genuine theology must be closely tied to scripture. Indeed, some persons go so far as to say that scripture is theology and all the theology we need. This view appears in the claim that scripture is truth itself. Uh, that is it, and that it's indisputably true information about something. On the other hand, it's become fashionable recently to consider theoretical physics as a form of theology. It seems to be about the same topics that the, the theological discourse is about, the origin and destiny of the universe, the statistical improbabilities of the appearance of life, the immaterial na uh, nature of matter, and so forth. The boundaries of prayer are also ambiguous. Of course, we could say simply enough that anything said to God is prayer. But if you wonder, as I did when I was a little boy, how you can find a proper object to aim your words at with your eyes closed, the question of defining prayer becomes more difficult. How can you know that it's truly to God that you are speaking? There is a theological method of defining prayer. One might, for example, develop an image of God from scripture, then pray to such a being. Indeed, one might even assume that a primary task for theologians is to provide an understanding of God that makes it possible for us to know whom we are addressing in our prayers. But to use theology to make prayer possible is getting it backwards again. Prayer, which depends on theology to define its proper addressee, is bound to be theological prayer, that is, discourse about something and not to someone. How often we hear prayers that sound like sermons, how often we hear ourselves praying in a way that seems to be informing or instructing God instead of speaking to God from our hearts. I should rather consider prayer to be genuine depending on its origin and not on its object or its content. What is truly spoken from the heart is prayer. Does it not matter then to whom one speaks? Will anyone or anything do as the addressee? The answer to this question is elusively simple. Speak from the heart, and you will speak to God. The substance of much that is to come in these pages is meant to elucidate this simple point, but I can anticipate it here by several brief observations. The meaning of the verb to pray is to ask or even to beg, and the heart is a beggar. Petition and supplication are its natural modes. As I shall try to make clear later, we live by asking. We have nothing we do not ask for.
What is more, there is a kind of wisdom in begging. We know that we cannot beg pennies of the penniless, and we do not ask fools for guidance, but then neither do we ask anything of the rich or the wise if we believe ourselves sufficient in wealth or understanding. Begging comes from need, and only the poor can be beggars, whether their poverty be in goods or spirit. If you know your need, if you do not shut your eyes to the truest longing of your heart, you will know where to take your petitions. It's not theology or philosophy, but only your heart that will lead you towards God. The text for these meditations is Jesus' declaration, Ask and you shall receive. What is implied in this remarkable teaching is that there is a great spiritual abundance and unlimited treasure available to those who ask. The issue here is not talking God into something. It's not finding ways of influencing the Almighty. The issue is far simpler. Just ask. All else follows. Jesus does not say, ask and you will get what you deserve, or were clever enough to think of, or were lucky enough to be given. By putting the end between the asking and the receiving, they become part of the same movement. There's no asking without receiving and no receiving without asking. There are many questions raised about the efficacy of prayer. Are prayers really answered? How is it possible that we could persuade God to give us what we want? Does God not already know what we want anyway? Besides, what sort of God do we have who, will, who we can influence through our requests and so on? But these questions are all theological. They are an attempt to get everything in order before we begin. And for that reason, they fail if they succeed. If we have an understanding of these matters... It's an understanding about God, with the result that we will pray about something and not to someone. What we ask for will be determined by our understanding and not our hearts. Questions such as these will therefore be ignored in these meditations. By the way, if you read into these remarks a strong anti-theological bias on my part, I demure. My only objection here is to the claimed primacy of theology. While it's true that theology cannot lead us to prayer, it is still the case that prayer can lead us to theology. And you may reply, yes, but to a theology that has nothing to do with the truth, since it's not about anything verifiable or even testable, and therefore a, a theology about which one could hardly be serious. And to that, I could only agree. But I agree happily, for this raises theology from science to art. And this means that theology is no longer a region where we engage each other in dispute, attempting to mark out the boundaries for proper belief, but where we come together in creativity and imagination, unwilling to put any boundaries around the truth. Theology is inevitable, like spirited conversation between friends who have much to share with each other. It's only when theology is directed at opponents with whom we share nothing and want to share nothing that it falsely asserts its primacy. Those who can pray with each other will take up theology with a natural enthusiasm that makes it a joyous discipline. This, then, is the first conceptual tool, a distinction between theology and prayer, or speaking about something and speaking to someone. The second conceptual tool is the experienced fact, in all candor, uh, that I must say that I've never heard God speak, nor can I even say that I've ever read what I know God to have said. What I have experienced, and experienced repeatedly, is the silence of God. 
For many years, the silence of God was a distressing matter for me. Indeed, I did not consider it an experience at all because the absence of an experience. It was an absence of an experience, but it was because God said nothing that I assumed I had no significant religious experience. The reason for my distress, quite frankly, was that I wanted some sort of certainty on which I could rest my religious beliefs. As it was, I had tried a few tired proofs for the existence of God and the general worth of religion, but I did not really believe them myself. So I wanted genuine proof, even if it was an inner disclosure, a private communication, something more exciting and more convincing than the yellow light and the loving grandparents in the neighborhood church of my childhood. But over a considerable period of time, I came increasingly to see that the silence of God is not the absence of an experience, but the very essence of religious experience. In coming to realize the positive religious value of the silence of God, I passed through a number of discouraging, non-productive, dead-end exercises in my spiritual life. Nothing so remarkable as the mystic's gloomy cloud of unknowing or the dark night of the soul, but instructive nonetheless. One moment is worth recalling here. The silence of God was most troubling to me during my college years when I sometimes went to the extreme of walking about on isolated country roads at night, demanding that God manifest himself. Only once did anything surprising ever occur. Coming into my dormitory room very late one night, long after my roommates had gone to sleep, I threw myself fully clothed on the bed. Several hours later, a powerful voice woke me out of a dreamless sleep. I had the clear impression that someone had spoken directly into my ear and had spoken with such terrifying authority that I sprang onto the floor. It took me a few seconds to make sure I'd heard the words correctly. But yes, there was no doubt about it. What the voice had said was, rise and make your bed. I looked around the room in the faint morning light to see whether anyone else had been awakened by this command or whether someone had played a trick on me. But all three of my roommates slept on, undisturbed. Rise and make your bed? My bed was made. I never even pulled back the blankets. What did it all mean? But by the middle of the next day, I had convinced myself that the voice was most certainly of divine origin, partly because it seemed so clearly to have come from without, and partly because it possessed such compelling authority. I also decided that the mysterious message was not at all frivolous as it seemed, but was to be interpreted as a code for something far more portentous, it seemed exactly the sort of proof that I had longed for, but the more I thought about it, the less I was sure of what it proved. And for that reason, I told no one about it. I could not imagine how I could report it without sounding ridiculous. It was years before I did tell anyone, but by then I could see myself that it was ridiculous. I had found that every interpretation I tried to put on the words was sillier than the last. Rise and make my bed some basis for faith. But speaking now theologically, that is to say whimsically, I can well imagine that someone did play a trick on me. I can visualize an angelic presence musing. If that arrogant young man asks for one more divine revelation, let us give him one. Like the Buddha who would give ridiculous answers to his disciples' metaphysical questions, such as, does the soul exist after death? My angel gave me a message that refused to be a message. 
It was a way of showing me that I was trying to back into faith by means of theology. All I wanted God to do was to provide me with just one indisputable theological item so I could avoid the embarrassment of standing there with nothing but a longing heart. God did not cooperate. This incident, however, was not in itself decisive. In retrospect, it is more revealing than I thought at the time, but that's largely because I've come to learn that the silence of God is acknowledged in a variety of ways in many spiritual traditions. The essential insight here is that in an encounter with divine reality, we do not hear a voice, but acquire a voice, and the voice we acquire is our own. It is an experience which we find, uh, we say that we never thought it was possible to say. And because this insight is fundamental to the problem of prayer, and because the notion of the silence of God is no doubt still puzzling to the reader, the first meditation will explore the deeper meaning of this silence. The following three meditations deal with the inherent structure of prayer, what we can truly ask God for, what God can actually give us, and what we are able, in fact, to receive from God. <laughs> 